Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. It's a real treat to be here at the Mandavi Center, and I'm glad that uh, you came to listen to us talk before what promises to be a memorable concert. Uh, Philip Glass and I have been friends and colleagues for some 30 years now, and we've talked about many, many different kinds of music. Uh, I remember when he wrote his first opera for full opera chorus and orchestra and everything like that, and when he was doing his first films. And yet, tonight, we're sort of going back to the beginning. We're, we're, we're doing some very new work. Our uh, Glass and Wendy Sutter will be doing some very new work. But uh, after the films, after the operas, after the wide variety of uh, material that Philip Glass has written, uh, recently he's started to write a great deal of chamber music again, uh, which has always been part of his work, but it's, it's also really going back, I would say, to some extent to the very, very simplicity, very um, essence of music, uh, because I would assume the first instrument you probably learned how to write on was probably the piano. The flute, actually. The flute, that's right. But, I, but the piano was, uh, uh, became my main instrument. So um, th- there's been this flowering of, of chamber music that mm-hmm. you've written in the last few years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that comes about in a, in a curious way. Uh, one of the things that, of course, you know, and many people might know, is that uh, very early on I got interested in what we now call global music, what we used to call world music in the old days, but now it's global music. Is that more PC than... I don't know. Anyway, that's <laughs> they what both we call fit. So, uh, But I began this in the early, mid-60s uh, as an uh, associate of uh, Ravi Shankar's, I was his assistant, but actually I, I was actually his student, but I was working as his assistant, I was learning from him. And from that, and that was in 1963 or 64, so that's more than 40, year, uh, more than 40 years ago. So from that moment on, I began uh, uh, looking and, and uh, kind of participating and engaging and encountering uh, musicians from other traditions. And that would have been people like Fode Suso from West Africa, uh, Wu Man from China, Mark Atkins from uh, Australia, um, Ashley McIsaac, Cape Breton fiddle player, all kinds of Tibetan musicians and other African musicians. And that became mixed in with what I did. And, and part of the, uh, the progress of my music, such that, as, as it were, had to do with these encounters and what they brought to it. And so in a certain way, uh, that became folded into the general way that I was working. Uh, very recently, uh, I began, uh, uh, I was playing with a, a group called Bang on the Can. I was on tour with them maybe four years ago. And Wendy Sutter was the cellist in that group. And uh, about a year later, I had the idea of, I, I was asked to do a piece, and I had the idea of working with cello and voice. Lisa Villalava was the voice, who was mm-hmm. a, a regular singer with me. And, uh, and Wendy was interested in that. And I began working with her on a piece, which we're going to hear tonight, the Songs and Poems, which is actually... It's barely two years old at this point. Now, one of the things that I, I discovered in my encounters with world music, I came to the conclusion uh, uh, that all music was actually ethnic music. In the way you say all politics is local, mm-hmm. all music is local. All music is ethnic music. 
And when I began working with her, and now I knew a lot about chamber music as a kid, but in the course of, uh, of uh, my music development, I became involved with what people call experimental music and this global music thing. And then at that point, I was now encountering a person who was steeped deeply in the world of chamber music. She played with Bang on the Can, which was also a lot of progressive music, but besides that, she had uh, toured with Bresnikov with, with a piece called Suite of Dances, which was, uh, all, which was from the Bach Suites. Uh, she played with the uh, uh, or, uh, Orpheus uh, group and with the uh, chamber music of, of Europe. She played a lot of chamber music, was at Marlborough, so she was really steeped in uh, chamber music. And this was the music that I knew as a boy. I knew it through my father, who loved this music. And now here I was, I'm some 50 years later, listening to this music again. I would, uh, uh, sometimes these pieces, the pieces I was doing was, were, were for her, were being played at music festivals, like at the Telluride Festival or in the one in, in, uh, uh, in Aspen. And I was meeting other musicians who were also, like her, really out of the world of classical music. And, uh, and as, as it was understood. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, but I looked upon them as being uh, a, a form of ethnic music. I didn't think of it as classical music. Well, to me, it's part of the, the, great, uh, the great quilt of the great panorama of music. It was just part of it, no more, no less. Uh, uh, and I saw it that way. But, but the point was is that I saw it as being important. And I thought that this was something that I could, could work with. So I wrote these pieces for her. The next thing, I found myself writing music for piano forehands, or two piano forehands for Dennis Davies. Again, I was addressing a classical ensemble. And then shortly after that, Maria Bachman, a very fine violinist, asked me for a piece. And I wrote her a piece. And then she said, well, what, what do you think it is? And I said, I thought, well, let's call it. I had different names for it. And I finally said, you know, Maria, it's actually a, a violin piano sonata. That's what it is. So let's just call it that. Uh, and in a way, when I wrote that piece for her, I was recalling, not that it sounded like that, but I was thinking of the tradition of the, I was thinking of the Brahms violin piano sonata, yeah, I was thinking sure. of the Foray sonatas, uh, the Franck sonata, uh, Prokofiev, uh, and then the Beethoven, the Mozart. I was thinking, when I was thinking of the piece that I was doing, I said, what does this piece have to do with? And I said, well, it's part of a, it's part of a tradition. It doesn't mean it has to sound like that, but in many ways, uh, the, because of the way it's not, an, it's not an amplified piece, it's done, it's meant to be done as a chamber music piece, and will probably be done that way. I doubt that it will ever be amplified. Uh, so I began, uh, I wrote it in, uh, in um, that one's in three movements. So it's a kind of a classic violin piano sonata, and so, and then I said to someone who I was working with, I said, you know, I've discovered a new frontier. And they said, what? I said, it's the, the audiences and the performers of what we call classical music, which is actually just concert music. Classical music refers to a period of music, and we use the term loosely to mean uh, right. this, the, these traditions, of classic, uh, uh, you know, the classical, the romantic, and the late romantic period. We put them all together, and we call it classical music. But uh, I, said that, I said the new frontier for me it's actually classical music. <laughs> now, the thing is, that I come to it, first of all, I had that, I had a complete formation of training from, uh, besides, I was, at, I was at Peabody when I was a kid in Baltimore, and then I was at Juilliard, and then was, Caddy and uh, all this. Yeah. And then with Boulanger, who was the, uh, who basically 
studying with her was like having a, a brain in, in a transplant. She, <laughs> she, uh, she just, she you worked so hard at the, at the principles of Harmony and Convoy that it was just like having it installed into your brain. And I spent 30 years trying to forget about it. That's I, one of the reasons you wrote music in a similar motion, wasn't it? I, I was. Sort of, <laughs> to to I break the rules? <laughs> and I, I, yes, but, but the fact of the matter is, to break the rules so rigorously is actually to follow them un, unfailingly. Right, right. I just turned black into white. That's all I did. But I didn't do any, all the other things I could have done, which I eventually began doing. But um, my first encounters with, uh, with after my, uh, my bout of of classical, well, let's call it uh, Central European art music, which is what she taught. After a long bout, almost two to three years of, with her, of that, I began to do, I began to write music that was the opposite. But of course, being the opposite, of course, is being the same. Do, do we know if she ever heard any of your uh, mature music? And what her response I, I, you know, I, 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 She lived I, till 79, yeah, so I... That's right, and, and I, I studied with her, I, my studies ended with her in 65, I believe, it was 63, 64, 65. Then I, but by 71, I was playing in Paris again. Yeah. Now, uh, when I played in Paris, I would go to the, I would, I would look, peek around the corner to see if she was there. And if she was there, it would be, she would be sitting in the center of the first row. I knew her, that's what she did. And, of course, I was terrified that she would be there. And uh, I escaped. Uh, she, I, I never saw her then. But then a friend of mine, later, sometime later, by 76, which she was still, said, asked her if she had heard Einstein on the, ba- Einstein on the beach. And she said very enigmatic, enigmatically, yes, I know it. But I don't know what she, <laughs> what she meant by that. <laughs> to to, to it, it could have been... She might have heard it. She might have seen a score. I, I doubt she saw a score. She might have heard about it. She might have heard a recording. Uh, and she made no comment about it. She said, yes, I know it. Uh-huh. Okay. But did she make any comment? No, she didn't. Not to me directly. Uh, there's another story about my... Years later, I came across some letters that she wrote to the Fulbright. I was, had a Fulbright. And I thought... I, I really thought that the, the degree to which she absolutely tortured me uh, uh, to the limits of my mental endurance and stabi- mental stability, actually, um, that I thought that she must have really uh, detested me and thought I was a really hopeless case. And then I, years later, about 40 years later, I, I came across some letters that were so offered to me that she had written to the Fulbright Commission. She tried to get me a renewal, which they didn't give renewals in Paris. I stayed anyway. But she tried to get... She, and she was writing letters on my behalf. Oh. But... Now, come to think of it, she may have thought that she hadn't really finished with me yet and that she needed to get me back. So, so it might, I don't know that, that, that those complimentary letters were actually what they appeared to be. So I never, never to this day, I don't know. You, you, you wrote those pieces in the 1970s when you were coming into your own, uh, you were inventing your own musical language and you called them Another Look at Harmony and you wrote another yes. part one, part two, part three. So, so these are kind of another look at classical music, as it were. Oh, oh you can say that, but... I, I, on the other hand, uh, um, I, have, I have less ideological problems about music than I never really did, but, uh, except in a certain way when I was writing uh, uh, in, a, in, a, with a, in a radical musical language, which was, uh, people used to call it minimalism. I don't even know if it's still called that in a way, but it doesn't sound so much like that anymore. But uh, uh, I think that, that 
taking those extreme positions in terms of music was a very was an ideological way of reacting to to the music situation of the time, which I, I had a lot of good reasons for that. I don't really need to go into it now, but uh, uh, but I certainly was uh, thinking that way, and I would say that I'm thinking far less like that now. I, I think very little. In fact, uh, uh, I now when I'm writing music, I, uh, I, I, I uh, the analytic part of writing has almost disappeared, uh, uh, fortunately. So that I don't, I often don't know the names of, the, I don't know the names of the chords. And if, if someone said, this is, a, what key is it? And I, I would have to look at it and I would have to decide. I, when I'm not writing, I'm not thinking that way. With the early music, I was thinking that way. It's funny because earlier today we were talking about the early days with the Philip Glass Ensemble and how it would just be one car and then a van loaded up with equipment. And now you're playing, I mean, we, we have some other instruments here tonight, but now often you're playing just piano and cello. That would have made things a whole lot easier getting around the country in those days. Well, uh, Wendy Sutter would have been about six years old at the time. So that would have been difficult. <laughs> but, uh, uh, we, we, we learned, the, I say, when I say we, I mean the ensemble. My, and, and tonight, uh, Mick Rossi plays with me and uh, uh, regularly with the ensemble. Yeah. Uh, Dan Dryden, who is uh, helping with the sound, is a regular member of the ensemble. My tour manager, uh, 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 Jim, uh, 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 Jim Woodard has uh, also been with me for... T- you know, these are regular members of the ensemble. Mm-hmm. The ensemble still exists. As a, as oh, yeah. Oh, I know that. But, uh, but, but this is kind of an offshoot of it. Uh, and, and I also do solo piano music. I'm, I'll be doing a solo piano concert in Napa in the town tomorrow. Uh, day after tomorrow. Uh, but the piano, uh, is in, uh, though I played a lot of, with electronic instruments, the piano is actually the instrument I have at home. Uh, I often begin the day and end the day with the piano, so it's not so strange for me to write for the piano. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, my my approach to music as I get older tends to be uh, much more inclusive and less uh, ideological. Tell us something about the pieces we're going to be listening to tonight. Uh, we're starting... I'm, I'll start with two pieces uh, uh, from a group of works that were done in the late 70s, so called Metamorphosis, are actually associated with the first film I did with Earl Morris called The Thin Blue Line. They come from that period. Uh, I'll do two of those pieces. And then we're going to do, I would say, Wendy Sutter will be playing uh, uh, an extended uh, uh, suite of pieces, seven, seven movements uh, for solo cello. Uh, it's called Songs and Poems uh, uh, for solo cello. I'm not really. You know, I don't know where titles come from. Uh, in fact, and when I do know, I usually forget after a while. There may have been a reason for that, but uh, I just saw, she asked me at one point, what the, I had originally written it for Lisa and, and, and for Wendy, and then uh, Wendy said, well, I'd like to, a solo piece, but it's a little awkward having to do it with, you know, to find a singer every time I want to do it. And I said, you know, you're right. Let, let me just rewrite the piece. So I basically I went and I took that original piece and I composed new sections and I redid the ones and I said that we turned it into a solo piece. There are seven movements. Uh, uh, the first and second are very close together, so you might miss that there is a second movement there. Uh, but after that, you can follow them pretty easily. Uh, uh, they've been compared, you know, the, the, the instrument itself uh, that's just playing is a, uh, is a, uh, a cello that's 400 years old. Uh, this is a very interesting phenomenon. This, uh, I've only heard the piece played on that instrument. 
And uh, it's an instrument that, this instrument was built before Bach wrote the Bach Suites. Wow. It was written, it was built 60 years before <clears throat> that. It was actually originally um, uh, uh, viola da gamba that was extended. It was built by Amadi, it was extended uh, and then finished in, uh, by Stradivarius. It then went into the Vatican for 200 years and kind of disappeared, but it, it acquired some beautiful uh, painting on it. You might have seen that. On the, there, there are angels on the back, and there's a papal crown on the, on the actual back of the cello. Uh, what's interesting about the piece is that the, the, these pieces, and something that we, we wonder, we, we discuss it, how kind of an instrument acquires such a strong personality. Now, where does that come from? And uh, uh, this piece, um, this instrument is made for modern music. It has to, have to wait How 400 years. <laughs> I wait a long time. <laughs> but uh, it sounds quite good with the Baroque, too. But uh, this piece works extremely well with modern pieces. Um, uh, now, there are a lot of theories about this. Uh, and the, the one that's widely believed and held by musicians is that the actual vibration of the, of the music transforms the, has an effect on the wood and, and turns the instrument into a coherent uh, voice in some... And, you know, I'm not sure that this is... I don't know whether we're talking uh, about physics now or about uh, uh, some kind of uh, uh, subjective uh, idea about what, uh, you know, some kind of... Idea. I have no idea. Uh, I can't discount the fact that it may actually be like that. The, the, the fact that the, the, the resonance of the instrument is so profound. And so, 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 so in a way, when you hear this piece, you're hearing three things. You're hearing an instrument. Uh, and in a way, the music was written for... The, you're hearing a, a, a player who understands that literature extremely well and also knows modern music very well. And you hear an instrument that was made for another period of music, practically. It was played in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in church services at the Vatican for 200 years. And then when it was left, left that, it, it went into a private collection for 150 years. It was owned by a woman named Harriet Curtis, who we think was probably connected to the Curtis School in Philadelphia. She was from Pennsylvania. Uh, Wendy also was trained at the Curtis School. I mean, there, you get into all kinds of funny things when you start thinking about this stuff. So, and then I wrote the piece for her and for the cello. And so you almost can say that uh, the, the presentation of the music in this, at that moment is a coincidence of three, uh, of three streams of energy. The energy of her life, the energy of the life of the cello, and the energy of my life. And they come together in this piece. Uh, or let me put it another way. If any of these elements were different, you would not be hearing that piece tonight. That's really remarkable because we often think of composers writing specifically for certain performers, but you're actually writing for a certain performer and a certain instrument, well, which is pretty it's unmis unusual. It's an unmistakable. Uh, it's, uh, for me, it's an unmistakable fact, and I believe it is for Wendy also. But I can leave that. Now, we've only recently, she has, I should say, she has just found the best bow. Now, all bows are different. But she just recently found a, a wonderful bow for this instrument. So now the whole package is complete. Uh, anyway, so that's the second piece, and that goes on for half an hour. So I then I'm going to do two, 
I believe I do two short pieces there. And that's when uh, Mick Rossi, who was the percussionist, he'll be, these will be two, um, I, these are two etudes, if I've got the, if I've got the go to the program right. Number two and then number 10, and he plays number 10, and he'll be playing uh, hand drums with that. After that, we play uh, four pieces that are, uh, that come from the film Nakoikasi. Now, this is fairly recent. Now, we can say the Songs and Poems was from maybe 2007, but uh, Nakoikasi was from 2001. These were little interludes and, uh, for a film made by Alfred Reggio, the man that made Kanyanaskasi uh, and Poakasi. And these little interludes were written for cello, and they were recorded originally for the film. And uh, um, uh, Yoyama did the original uh, recording, but uh, he only spent a, a day with them. Uh, Wendy has spent, we have been performing them, and uh, they have become, they've now become uh, a place of their own, in a way. So that's, that's a, uh, now after that, the, the last group of pieces we do would be, uh, uh, is, is a group from, a piece called The Screens, which is a play by, uh, by Genet. It was written, um, I saw the first performances written in 65 at the Théâtre Dion in Paris. It was called Le Parrain, if you know, if you would maybe know by the... It's not done very much. It's a story uh, about the French colonial, the French occupation of Algiers at the time. And it was a very political piece at the time. And uh, when I was asked to do the music for it, it was, uh, it was directed by Joanna Coladas at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis. And um, I had seen it in Paris, as, as she had. We had seen it at the, at the, not the first performance, but at the first series of performances. It was such a scandalous piece at the time that there was a, there were riots in the front of the theater, but not by, but there were police riots. And they, they tried to stop the performances. Uh, it was, it was a very radical piece in this day. Um, uh, I decided that for the purposes of that, I would ask an African musician, and it was Fode Suso from the Gambia. I mentioned him a little earlier. He's a chora player and, uh, and a singer. And uh, he, uh, together we alternated writing sections of the piece so that there would be a European part and a, uh, there would be the French part and there would be the African part. And we, and we did some things together and some things separately. Uh, I picked three pieces for tonight's. One was, uh, it begins with a piece called The Orchard. Uh, you know, these pieces have such beautiful titles. And unfortunately, I don't remember anything about the play anymore, so I don't remember why it's called The Orchard, but it feels like that to me. So that's for Wendy, myself, and, um, and, and, and Mick. The second one is called France, and the third one is called The French Lieutenant. And these are very sentimental pieces. Uh, 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 you know, Genet was accused of hating the French, but, but he himself, of course, was French. And if he hated the French, it was, it was a complicated affair. The whole thing. Mm -hmm. When I wrote the pieces, uh, when I wrote these pieces, I thought of them. I I imagined uh, the French lieutenant in a cafe in Algiers. It's raining. It's lonely. He feels terribly sorry for himself. And this is the music. <laughs> so that's what it is. So it's very sentimental music in a certain way. And yet, are there true portraits? The portraits of a theater, of a theater conception, of that way. Uh, we we end. I think. Uh, I think the last piece on the program is from uh, Glassworks. is called uh, Closing. And yeah. again, it's with Mick. And, uh, it's a short piece, but it's for, with Mick and, and Wendy and myself. So that's the program. Remarkable. Um, 
I, I know there are a lot of musicians out there who would very much like to play your music. Uh, and you've been reluctant to let a lot of it out in scores because I think you still have the same attitude that you had 30 well, years ago, which is that in general, you want, if people want your music, you want to bring it to them. Well, let's be, uh, put it more bluntly. I make my living by playing. So I'm not inclined to give away the music that I make. <laughs> I just don't want to do it. Now, it does happen. The symphonies are played by symphony orchestras. Right. The string quartets are getting played quite widely yeah. now. Uh, but it, they were mostly written for the Kronos Quartet. But the ensemble music and this music uh, is uh, the use of it. The music that I am out, out playing, and that, uh, the, the, the solo piano music, the etudes for piano, uh, these pieces, uh, I've reserved them for, uh, for my own purposes. And uh, uh, it's a little difficult sometimes, but... Uh, it's not for me, really, uh, but people would like to play them, but I feel, well, maybe 10, 15 years at the most, I can play them a little bit longer. I mean, if I'm lucky. And if people want to play them after that, I don't care. I won't be around anyway, so what do I care? I hope you'll be around a long time. Thank but... you, Tim. <laughs> but, but still, uh, as long as I can play them, and uh, uh, it's, it's a rather, it's a narrow point of view, and yet uh, the economics uh, of my life don't allow me to to, to be careless about these things. I don't make my living doing anything but playing and writing. Do you think eventually that there'll be some kind of like ye olde piano book uh, which will oh, yes. gather together uh, all uh, this Oh, yes. I, I would, uh, there are 16 piano etudes, which mm -hmm. I would... Uh, eventually, they'll be edited and published. And a lot of organ music, too, which I think... Organ music, too. Some of them... I've, done, I've published a couple of those. There are four, four or five of those. And, and before I had made up my mind thoroughly about, on this matter, I had published a, a handful of pieces, but I, I stopped. I stopped printing them. No. Uh, though the quartets and the symphonies and the operas uh, uh, are around, but Michael Reisman, uh, my regular music director, has made a number of piano arrangements uh, from the films. Uh, his, Satyagraha. Uh, and yeah. and uh, has done whole books of music. Uh, but I'm still the publisher of that. And, and he, he agrees with me. He, he has done those arrangements for, for himself to do concerts, and he does do concerts, and they're not available for other people. So it's just, that's the way it is. Uh, this year, or rather last year, um, last April, was the year that your music was finally brought into the Metropolitan Opera. Now, you had done Einstein on the Beach there in 1976. 76. Um, it was a special event. That was a very special event. But, but, but it was co-produced by the, by the Met. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Jane uh, Herman, I think. Yeah, it, that's right. She produced it, but it wasn't commissioned by the men, and it wasn't in the regular season. How did it feel to be embraced by this sort of cathedral of well, opera in the United States? You know, don't forget The Voyage was done in 92. That's true. But, that's but, true. but, but, but the point, uh, but I think the, the interesting point was that by the time I got around to doing The Voyage in 92, I'd probably written 15 operas anyway. So it wasn't a, I wasn't new at the game. With Satyagraha, I was quite new, and it was a very radical piece in many ways, and uh, only a handful of uh, co opera companies would touch it. So, um, and even, uh, I remember talking to Jane Herman uh, uh, at, the t uh, at the time she was connected with, and they said, how do you get an opera at the Met? She said, look, the Met will be the last place that will play your work. When everyone else is doing it, then they'll do it. Well, it wasn't quite like that, because, but it did make its way around to some smaller opera companies. 
And uh, I think the coincidence of the, of the, the theme of uh, uh, change, uh, changes in society through, uh, through nonviolence, I think that idea, which is the idea of the peace, uh, the time had come for it in a different way. I don't really know why Peter Gelb asked to do it. Uh, no, actually, that's wrong. The English National Opera did the first production, and Peter Gelb uh, uh, um, participated as a co-producer, but it was actually done in London first. Uh, I'm not sure why they, they got the idea, but uh, it turned out, and, this, and the, the text is in Sanskrit, and it's the Bhagavad Gita, which is not something that people grew up knowing in this country. Uh, and yet, the interesting thing, uh, Tim, was that when we projected the words in English to go, well, we didn't use the uh, little subtitle thing that they have. We had the, the words in the set. And uh, when, I saw this, when I saw the words of the Bhagavad Gita uh, in, on the screen at the Opera House, I looked around. It, to the people that were in the audience, the words didn't seem strange. Uh, the themes of, uh, of, of, uh, of, of nonviolence and change were, were there, and they were there for everyone to see. That the had been born in India thousands of years ago, or written at that time. Uh, it's a coincidence that no one bothered to pay much attention to. It was, the, the theme was familiar. In a world of, of such violence that we live in, uh, to have it just an evening, three or four hours, where we thought about something different, it was a kind of, it's, it's a kind of a, uh, an optional vacation you can take from what, from what the world that we truly live in. Uh, I, 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 I'm not sure that these, that art changes the world or that, I don't know that it can do that. I don't know that the spirit of, 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 of any age has been so free of violence that they could, could hope to take that up. It's, we've been great failures at that. And not just, uh, uh, not, not just Gandhi, but King is also was a great proponent of that. I'm not, I don't, I no longer think that, that I'm, I'm changing the world by that. But I do think that, uh, um, that the hours that, that just to, to, to think about it, to contemplate it, and that was my, always my original idea. I said, let's just think about this for a few hours. Just think about it and see what, what changes that can make to us in a personal way. Well, it's a remarkable and beautiful piece, and it was extraordinary to see it and hear it performed after so long, working with you all those years ago on preparing... You want to admit the, that you would, what you were doing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll admit it. It was my first musical job. I worked as a copyist and uh, editor for Philip when he was putting together I, I, yeah. the Satyagraha in the summer three, of 1980. I had three or four fellows in my apartment. Yeah. No, I, no air conditioning in those days. No air conditioning. Uh, I remember it vividly. Yeah. A very hot, very sticky summer in New York. What are you, what are you working on now? What... what um, what plans do you have? You're working on, a, I, I assume, you have to be working on at least one opera. Yeah, there is. It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting opera, which uh, about the, about the uh, astrologer, uh, astronomer Kepler. Now, I'd, I've long been, as you know, I've been very uh, drawn to figures in science. There was, of course, Einstein. Uh, there's Galileo. I did uh, a score for a film about uh, Stephen Hawking called Brief History of Time. And so now the Kepler... Uh, I, I have a per, my personal take on scientists, and it comes from uh, the fact that as a, as a child even, I, was, I would say that music was my love, but my hobby was science. 
I even as by the age of 10 or 12, I was, I belonged to an astronomy club in Baltimore where we made telescopes and we looked at the stars. That, on the top floor, on the roof of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, the name of the library, Enoch Pratt, you know that library. Oh, I know it. Uh, and uh, <laughs> well. the astronomy club was, and I would go there as a child, and I was making, uh, uh, looking at, uh, uh, learned how to make telescopes and do that. And then later, uh, 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 about the same time, actually, in 4950, right after the Second World War and the, fir- the, 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 the first atomic moment, suddenly... Einstein and the theory of relativity was everybody wanted to know about it. And there were all kinds of popular books about it. And even Einstein wrote a popular book about it. And, and I learned from that, uh, that that Einstein was a dreamer. And he explained once the most wonderful thing that I saw. He explained in his own words how that someone said, well, where did you get the idea for the theory of relativity? He said, well, I imagine myself sitting on a beam of light and the beam of light is traveling through the universe. And I asked myself, what would I see? And then I began to develop the mathematics to explain what I saw. And that was the theory of relativity. So he was a dreamer. He was a, and then I thought the same thing of Kepler. Uh, and the same thing of, uh, uh, I think, I talked to Brian Greene, who's involved with string theory. He's a young guy. And uh, we're talking about doing a piece together, by the way. Which I'm, but uh, uh, to me, scientists are like, like poets. And so by treating them, by bringing them into opera houses, I, I'm what I'm doing is com- combining them and wrapping them into music. Uh, Kepler was a very interesting guy. He was a really, he, first of all, he was a very mean guy. He, uh, he had an uh, a enemies list of all his, uh, his friends in high school and why he hated them <laughs> and why they hated him. Uh, he, he, he was just a person you just didn't want to know. When did he live exactly? Uh, well, I, I... he was just before, uh, just, he, was a, a, he was old, he was, uh, old mm. enough to have known the young Galileo or to have been writing to him. He wanted... A, a, a hand at the telescope, and Galileo refused actually. <laughs> so it said, "So we're talking the 16th century, uh, uh, you know." Uh, so the uh, he, so, uh, at the same time, and this is what I, I, I become interesting in these kinds of people. The kinds of people that are both they're, they're both uh, uh, sinners and saints, but the, the you know the, the feet in the mud and the head in the clouds. And he was definitely one of those guys, like the kind of guy you just probably didn't want to have anything to do with. But he would be teaching arithmetic in the, in the, in the, in the grade schools in Linz, Austria. By the way, Linz, Austria commissioned the piece. And, and to, you know, kind of snotty-nosed kids that, weren't, that had no idea what he was talking about. He was just even just talking about arithmetic. And while he was doing that, he was simultaneously thinking about the movement of the, of the his great accomplishment was he, he, he defined the ellipse as the movement of the, of the planets around the sun. Now, uh, two things about that. One thing, that they were moving around the sun, which he never admitted publicly. Because it would have gotten him in trouble. Oh, of course. Yeah. Galileo got, got put in, he spent yeah. his uh, last years in, in house arrest because of that. But he never, he somehow did it without saying <laughs> that it was going around the sun. But, uh, so it, it, was, it was that, but that... Uh, at the same time, it was not a perfect circle, which it should have been. It should have been a perfect circle, but it, the trouble was that it was an ellipse. And the, and the arithmetic and the mathematics pointed to the ellipse, and he finally had to say, okay, that's what it is. But for a, for a man of that, of that time to come to that, to, it, it, this is a tremendous intellectual uh, 
um, accomplishment, but also uh, the stamina to live by his ideas. At the same time, he had a whole bunch of other crackpot ideas about the, uh, uh, the harmony of the spheres. Now, I'm saying the crackpot ideas. We've all loved this idea. You know? But, but the, the planets had, were associated with, uh, with triangles and squares and pentagon and hexagons, and then they all f- supposed to fit into each other. So there's a whole side of Kepler which is completely bonkers. I mean, by, <laughs> by scientific standards, but yet, uh, but for, from the side of the dreamer and the poet, like alchemy. Well, a funny thing about alchemy, he, he uh, by luck, I think, but I don't know, maybe it wasn't luck, he, was man- he managed to predict the invasion of the Turks across, uh, the incursion of the Turks across the, the Austrian border, the place and the date, and he informed the government of that, and they put an army and had them waiting there, and by God, the Turks showed up, and, and they repulsed them. His life, his living was made for, for life. Uh, like he did it through astrology, or so he says. Or maybe it wow. wasn't good. Who knows? Anyway, he, he, he had an astrological chart that predicted that. And from that moment on, he could make his living doing charts, which he hated. He hated doing it, but that's how he made his living. That was his cab driving through <laughs> <laughs> anyway, So he was a very interesting character. I'm now, I'm now interested in another very interesting character. There's a, who was, I don't know if it's so different. I'm, I'm talking with a writer who did a book about Walt Disney. It's called The Perfect American. And it's actually about the death of Disney. Now Disney is another one of these guys, feet in the mud, head in the clouds oh, guy. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, I mean, he's responsible for a global fantasy that I would say there's probably... Uh, and he himself said, he said his greatest, inv- Walt Disney said, my greatest invention was Walt Disney. <laughs> you know, that he, he that everybody knows about this. And at the same time, he was an extremely difficult person. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, women were not allowed to work at the, except in, in uh, secretarial jobs. In fact, uh, the writer of that book, a guy named Peter Jung, just sent me a, uh, he got a copy of a letter uh, that, uh, that, that the Disney uh, company sent to a, a woman had applied for a job as a cartoonist, and they basically said, you know, we don't hire women to do cartoons. I mean, so there's that. He was also very proud of the fact that, that African Americans never worked there except that they, they were allowed to cut grass. Uh, the, uh, uh, the people, the Jewish community was not invited to work there, although in fact they ended up working there quite a lot. Uh, so he was a real... So, he was from southern, from Missouri, from a small town in southern yeah. Missouri, basically from the south. And he lived uh, by these uh, ideas. At the same time, he uh, was a man, and the people that worked for him said that, uh, they said that without him they couldn't have done, the, he, he didn't do the drawing. Oh, he did some early ones. Early but ones, the yeah. actual drawings were done by other people. And, uh, and, uh, and, and they would say, well, you know, we couldn't have done the work without him. He pushed them to a, a level of Accomplishment that they weren't. They said they were not capable of doing. So this is a very interesting character. Now, now the Disney estate is notoriously litigious. Um, or is there going to be problems if you make him into I, I an opera? I don't think so. Figure? I think we ta- we're, we have a. Uh, I think uh, there are uh, there's some protection when we deal with public figures. As a journalist, you know, as yeah. you were a yeah. journalist once. You're not Yeah, longer. I was. But uh, uh, we're allowed to write about. Uh, we're, uh, we're not talking about. Uh, um, uh, Recreating Mickey Mouse or 
no, doing, we're not doing we're not doing that. No, we're talking about uh, about more ineffable things than that. Things that are harder to pin down. Uh, about character, about things like that. I mean, we're allowed to make fun of people. We can make yep. fun of our presidents, and we often do. Saturday Night Live would be have been shut down in any other country. Saturday Night Live wouldn't have been allowed to do the things they've done. One yep. of the great things that we have in this country is uh, we've pushed the, you know, the the free speech idea. We're on both as Americans, we're on both sides of the question. Yeah, yeah. In fact. Um, Free speech is enshrined in the Constitution. We should, as a separation of church and state, all these ideas which we, which we live by and swear by, but we also snipe at them too as a country. But uh, uh, we're actually secretly hoping that they will, you know. Of course, they, surely they must know that, 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 that um, uh, to, to, to take us to court for writing an opera would be a, a great success. <laughs> <laughs> so, but well, we're secretly hoping that will happen. But uh, uh, I don't think they're quite. Well, I don't know. You know this, well, they this, just this, managed to extend the copyright rule pretty much entirely you know, for Disney. And, but not just for Disney. In fact, uh, uh, every person uh, involved with intellectual property has to thank the Disney company because uh -huh. uh, the protections that were awarded to them have been awarded to all of us. Uh, my, my. My compositions are protected for 75 years after I died. Long, longer, much longer than they need be. Irving mm -hmm. Berlin actually outlived his copyrights the way the copyright law was then. I, and that it drove him utterly crazy. He, he lived uh, in the old days, it used to be 75 years, period, from when it was first copyrighted till when it went out of copyright. And he outlived Alexander's ragtime band. And for what I'm told by people who are close to the 100-year-old Irving Berlin, he was just as angry as could be whenever well, this was put Well, eventually that was changed to be after the death of the, now, yeah, of the writer. Yeah. But th that was after the death of Irving Berlin. Yeah, but see, but, yes, that's right. But now it's after the death of our grandchildren, practically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, well, I think that's stretching it. Uh, or after our great-grandchildren. I mean, what the... Well, we want to open up the floor to you now to have any questions that you'd like to ask uh, Philip Glass. So would anyone like to start? Yes, please. Uh, the, the question was, uh, the uh, uh, first experience was with your music with Twyla Tharp uh, in the upper room. And uh, what was it like to see your work danced? Well, uh, from my first years at Juilliard, I was writing music for dance. Uh, I was maybe 19 or 20 years old at the time. And uh, I asked myself a very simple question. Who wants my music? You know, who would I show? And, and, I just, and I thought, well, dancers like music and theater companies like music. So I began writing for dance companies and theater companies. Now, we had, a dance comp we had several dance companies at Juilliard at the time. The Jose Limon Company was there, uh, and so was uh, uh, the Martha Graham Company. But... I wasn't writing for Jose Limon and Martha Graham. Though I did, I, I met Jose Limon at the time, and I did meet Martha Graham eventually, but I wasn't writing for them. I was writing for their students. Uh, and I found that, uh, that dance students, young choreographers, wanted music. So I wrote music for them. So from my earliest, my earliest collaborators were dance people, and they have continued to be uh, up to the present. I probably, uh, I, uh, I, uh, I am probably the most danced to living composer. I mean, it's, it's really all over the place. And, and not just the dance, and I've done about 20 ballets anyway, but apart from that, other pieces have been pressed into the service of the dance world, which I've been delighted by. Now, uh, I got very interested in dance, and I think 
actually, uh, I, I, I spent so much time with Stan's companies that I even formed the idea that, uh, of course, it was, I was way past able to do this, but I formed the idea that I wish I had become a dancer because I, it, I thought it was so interesting. The, 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 the human body is our, is our quintessential experience, and, and, and to, make, to make art out of our, our physical presence, would, to me, is an ultimate form of art. Uh, uh, of course, I was, uh, by the time I was working with... Uh, 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 at 19 or 20, I might have, but, 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 they had, but I toured with my first dance company with Twilight Tharp, uh, no, no, with uh, Lucinda Charles in 1979. Uh, by that time, I was 40, 42 years old. However, I discovered that there was a... There was a dance class every day uh, in the lobby of the theater, whatever theater we were at. And, and uh, uh, Lucinda traveled with a, uh, a ballet mistress to, who... So I, I got permission to take the class. So I actually got to take dance class. I was 42. It was pathetic, actually. But, uh, but the, the dancers were thrilled that I was there. And I, I did okay until the, we got into these what they call combinations. You know about that. Where the, it started... And, and, uh, uh, that kind of memory, I have very good musical memory, but that kind of body memory I didn't have at all. Uh, but, so I got very involved with dance, and uh, later I was working with Twyla Sarp and other companies. And from that, uh, when I was working with Twyla, for example, I said, I, let me come and see the company. And I always did this. I would go and sit with the company and watch them for a while before I even wrote music for them. And I don't know exactly what I was doing. I just wanted to have a... A, a, a visual and personal response to who they were. Uh, again, in theater, uh, I spent, uh, I became a theater composer almost primarily, uh, working in theater and opera and film. I consider that a form of theater of, of a kind. Um, and then uh, what, I, what I would do uh, when I was working at the public theater, I would go to the rehearsals, I would go to the costume fittings, I would sit through lighting rehearsals. I really wanted to know how theater was made. And in the end, uh, I ended up having, I, wasn't, I didn't master any of the arts, so the only one I really could do well was music. But I understood how it worked. I understood uh, uh, how long it took someone to leave. A, so when I read an opera now, I, I know how long it takes to get people on and off stage. And I, I, for example, I'm doing a piece in Linz, so it's a rather small stage. So going on and off doesn't take very long. So the transitions will be shorter. However, if the, if the opera goes to the Book and Academy of Music, which it will go, the stage is about 50% bigger. So I also have to have music that can be made larger so that when they... You know, so these are the kinds of things that you learn. Uh, working with a dance company, uh, and I performed with, the with uh, Lucinda's company. We went on several tours with them. Uh, I discovered that when we went to a theater, I had to change the tempo of the music to fit the stage. When the stage was bigger, the music had to be a little bit slower. Uh, when it was faster, the music, when the music was, stage was smaller, the music was faster. And the conductor, that would be Michael Reeson, had to take that into account. When you go to a stage, the, what will happen is that the choreographer will, 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 will place the, the piece, and it may take an hour or so, and figure out how uh, there'll be a kind of a rehearsal of the piece to fit the stage, and my music director has to be there. And if he makes a mistake, uh, 
he gets a dressing down from the dancers, unlike you, you can't believe. They could get so angry. If he made a mistake, and he didn't make many mistakes. He made a, I remember he made early on, uh, he, had, he, he was doing something so quickly that two dancers almost collided, and they were really angry. I'll bet. Uh, I'll but, bet. Uh, but that's how you learn about these things. The, the, the question is, uh, when uh, Mr. Glass writes music for film, how does he approach it in a way rather than, say, writing uh, music for just a regular concert? One of the basic things that a composer has to learn, and they rarely learn it uh, until they're faced with the uh, practicalities of it, is that the workplace of the theater, of, of a concert hall, of uh, uh, an opera house, and a film, are, the workplaces are different. Uh, the, the opera house belongs to the composer. When I'm asked to do an opera, I get to pick the director, and the director and I will pick uh, the designer. But after that, the designer picks the, uh, the lighting designer and the director and the lighting designer will pick the, the costume designer. Uh, I am also allowed to pick the writer. So I get to pick the writer and the director. So that's the main thing. Now, uh, when I say I get to do that, I, now that's the only place I get to do that. So the, the opera house belongs to the composer. That's why I wrote so many operas. Because I, I get to be, I get, no, uh, I, I'm not done yet, I'm sorry. Okay, that's okay. <laughs> okay, the, 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 the dance house belongs to the choreographer, and I can tell you stories that's absolutely without any question, uh, that they, get the, they, they apportion the rehearsal time according to their needs, and if you're lucky, you'll get some time with the orchestra, and not very much. Uh, the uh, um, theater belongs to the theater director, uh, and they'll, they'll cut and trim as they like. Uh, the, the, now, film, uh, there's independent films where you can collaborate. The difficulty with industry films is that it's a collaborative art film which is set up in a non-collaborative way. So it's extremely frustrating and difficult, and every, anyone will tell you that. And they'll, the, the people that run it will tell you that themselves. You know, uh, uh, I've done maybe 20 or 30 films. I'm often, I can be working with someone who's making their first film, and they'll tell me what, how I'm supposed to write the music. What do we think of that? But that's the reality. On the other hand, I found, uh, the last thing I'll go on, uh, the last thing I've discovered, and this is probably true for every business and every profession, the more experienced and more secure the director or the person who is running it is, the more freedom you have to work with them. The l l more insecure they are, the more they tell you what to do. So, human nature. Yes, sir. The, 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 the gentleman is a great fan of uh, Glass's score for Dracula and wondered how the project came about. Uh, the, uh, the film was owned by the, uh, uh, is now owned by MGM. I don't know what they're called now, but at the time it was MGM. Uh, and they decided to reissue three uh, of the old, uh, right at the turn of the talkies, you know, when the first spoken films came out. And the three was The Mummy, Frankenstein, and, and, uh, and uh, Dracula. And uh, they wanted to, uh, they, none of them had film scores. Uh, uh, Dracula had a very, they played Swan Lake at the opening credits, that was it. So they asked me if I would do a score for it, and they said, and they said pick one of the three, and I said, I'll do all three. Of course, that's what I would do. Uh, and they said, no, 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 you have to pick one. And they said, but, I said, if you let me do Frankenstein, I'll do it with chorus and organ. And I had another idea for, I forget what it was, for, I had all, ideas for all three. But they said, no, 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 pick one. And then I had this image of of uh, Bella Lugosi's face. That took up the whole screen. It had to be Dracula. Uh, the other thing is it had been a play. 
uh, it had been filmed as a play. It's clearly that it was. Uh, it's also very clear that they ran out of money uh, before the play was quite. The film was quite finished. And if you look at the film carefully, you'll see that the whole, the last uh, three minutes of the film go. <laughs> they had to get through the story right at the end. So uh, what I did, I used the music uh, to. Uh, uh, the, uh, there were very awkward scene changes. I, I did the music to to tie together the pieces, and also I brought the overture back at the end to kind of to make the ending a little more acceptable. So I was able actually to take. Uh, things that were problems in the film, real problems, uh, that had to do with the economics and the time. They, I, I bet that the film was shot in two weeks, I'm sure, and probably edited in, in, in five days. It was done very, very quickly. The company that did it was traveling in London for about 18 months. It was a Hungarian theater company, and Bela Lugosi was playing Dracula. That was the company they filmed. Well, it, it does the, take... the, the question is about the technical side of... of... Mr. Glass's music, especially music in 12 parts, which was performed on Monday night uh, in San Francisco. I wonder if any of you went to that. Uh, and about how, the, uh, how um, difficult it would be for a piece that lasts just about four hours. Yeah, the, well, well, first of all, uh, uh, any new musical language will inevitably have a performance style to go with it. If we think about it, it can't be any other way. For it to be truly new, there has to be no way to play it. That means that there's a different technique of playing. With my ensemble that began in around 67 and 68, we spent, I would say, three or four years learning how to play very unforgiving music. Uh, the eighth notes have to be lined up exactly right. And uh, we, what we discovered, we were playing with synthesizers because... We, we had multiple keyboards, and, and we discovered that the touch was very different from a piano. We developed a very light touch. Uh, uh, when I'm playing, uh, it, it's almost like a feather touch on the keyboard, and I can do that for hours. Uh, basically, we taught ourselves how to play that music. Now, having said that, uh, it's, there's another element of stamina uh, that has to do with the emotional stamina of focusing and, and being involved with a, a piece for four hours. Uh, there, uh, the singer has to take a break. She doesn't sing during part of part 10, but she sings all the way through. And the day before, she won't talk to anybody. She doesn't use her voice at all. And we can't do it two days in a row. Absolutely out of the question. Uh, but uh, uh, basically, we, we developed a performance technique that has to do with uh, playing. The, the wind players, uh, a lot of them do circular breathing. Uh, and they've uh, actually, they're the ones that are the most, um, I, I, I would think, um, uh, compromised physically by, by the experience. And uh, the wind players are the hardest, they have the hardest part. And uh, I can hear it on my monitor. Uh, I'm astonished by how much, how they take a break when they need to, but I'm astonished by how few breaks they actually take. The, the, the question was how to put together a concert, uh, whether you bunch specific kind of music together, where you, you give it sort of a beginning, middle, and an end like a term paper. I hope I'm doing justice to you. Uh, how do you imagine well, the concert? Uh, in fact, uh, the programs change. Uh, even the same pieces, the lineups, uh, or the show order, we call it, changes from time to time. Uh, I'll usually do one that seems logical to me in terms of who's on stage and who's off stage. So I take something very practical. Okay, I start... Uh, then Wendy comes on now, she needs a break because she's played for 30 minutes. So I come back and play again, and then I play with Mick, who hasn't been on stage yet. Now she comes back. So I, 
the first way is usually a kind of a choreography in terms of, but then after uh, we've done a program in overtimes, I begin to change it. Uh, I just start changing the pieces and I change the order. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I have so much music that I can draw from that I can, I can change the program and I can do that and still keep a kind of a core idea. For example, the show tonight, a lot of it has to do with uh, songs and poems and the placement. I put it early in the program because you as an audience are prepared to listen attentively earlier. I don't want to get you when you're tired and hit you with a piece like that. So my way of programming is that in this evening, the evening tends to get lighter as it goes on. And I learned that from uh, concerts I went to in India for years. I would go to India to hear music concerts. And I noticed they didn't put their biggest pieces at the end. And I noticed also that when I was writing operas, that the finales don't come at the end of the third act, they come at the end of the second act, the big piece, because that's when the chorus can still sing. If you have them sing at the end of the third act, they're not going to be able to sing very much. So there are physical things like that that you begin to play with. But uh, 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 what I found is that there are these physical limits like uh, stamina, and where people are. But apart from that, I'm very interested uh, in this. Uh, I, put, I tend to, uh, to, 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 make, to heavy load it at the front of the concert. Because by the, what, I like, what I liked about the concerts in India I would go to, I would go to hear a great singer like Bimsa Joshi, great, great singer. He would begin with long, uh, long rockets that would, and the early parts of the concert could take 30 or 40 minutes for one rocket. By the end of the evening, he was singing songs, popular songs. And I said, oh, that's such a good idea. You know, I thought, so I tend to work that way. It, because by the end of the evening, you've had, you've had the big meal, so to speak. And, 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 and the end of the concert is for, uh, the, the, for the lighter things, I, I think. I, I was thinking how Rossini's first act finales tend to always be the more grand ones than the, the there, second acts. There are endless things to learn from Rossini. Yes, yes. Very great composer. We are very much agreed on <laughs> and, that. And, 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 and technically, as a composer, just to learn the tools of the trade. Yeah. And he knew everything. Listen, this has to be it. Uh, thank you so much for being here today. I apologize that we didn't get to all your questions. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.